Tom Wright's latest book was published last week by SPCK. It's called Paul, A Biography. The book traces St Paul's journey from his early childhood through to his zealous persecution of the early church, to his experience at Damascus and his tireless missionary journeys, ministry and writings before his likely death as a Christian martyr in the mid-60s. What was St Paul trying to do? What made him do it? I spoke to Tom Wright last week about the book. If you want to buy a copy, it's on offer at the Church House Bookshop at 16.99. If you don't already subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Visit churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. We would just start why this biography of Paul now. Well, obviously, I've worked on Paul on and off for a long time. And various people said after my big book on Paul, which, as you know, was four and a half years ago, um, it would be good if you could do something at a different level, different register, so that people who aren't going to wade through 1700 pages of academic stuff will nevertheless get a sense of where this is all going. So that was always something people were saying to me. But then I read fairly recently the three novels about Cicero by um, Robert Harris, and I was struck by the way in which, through recreating the Rome of Cicero's day and his personal life, he brings the speeches to life, which, if you do classics as I did, we all studied those speeches, and suddenly seeing the same speeches, not as boring um, things that Cicero once wrote, but actually as part of an ongoing flow of political and social and turbulent life, that was really exciting. And I thought, my, if only one could do the same sort of thing for Paul, so to live in his skin and share his sense of background and purpose and what it was all about, that when you then get to the letters, whether it's Galatians or Colossians or whatever it is, you have a sense of, of course, he was bound to say this now because this was this was what was going on. So it was really a double attempt just just to make things straightforward for the ordinary reader, as it were, but also to to set the letters into a vivid three-dimensional historical context. Is this the first book of its kind portraying Paul in this way? Not really. I mean, I, I remember reading when I was quite young a biography by the writer John Pollock, which was a biography of Paul, um, trying to do the same kind of thing. But Pollock wasn't a New Testament scholar. He he was more a general Christian communicator. And fine, that that was that was great of its kind. And at the other end, when I was in my 20s, I suppose, I read F.F. Bruce's um, book, um, Paul. I think the title was. Um, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, or maybe that was the American title. It was it was F.F. F. Bruce's book. And uh, that was more scholarly. It had a lot more footnotes, a lot more sort of uh, gritty historical detail, which is fine. That's good. And I checked back a few things when I was writing mine. But uh, again, it's more topical. It's more now we go to this and then here we are in Corinth and how high is the Acropolis at Corinth and this sort of thing. Whereas I wanted to try to see it through Paul's eyes and live in his skin and and try to understand what made him tick. In fact, I used that phrase slightly too often in the first draft, what made him tick, and the editors told me <laughs> just to take it out a bit. But that's really what it's all about. You write that he, Paul is eager and vulnerable, bold and liable to self-doubt. He, he's a personality that modern readers might quite might find quite hard to take. Yes, in a way, but I think if one has any human sympathy at all, I think one can sympathise with somebody who has these passionate uh, senses and beliefs and hopes and so on. And yet, as you say, um, has extraordinary times of catastrophe, and especially the one he describes in Second Corinthians chapter one, where he despaired of life itself. That's really a turning point for him. In terms of him going quite early on in the book, we obviously talked, you talked first of all about Saul of Tarsus. 
And um, could you say a little bit about um, that person? Yes, yes. I mean, we do know quite a lot about what it meant to be a zealous Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There are various sources. Okay, some of them are later. The rabbis are later, but they do uh, preserve the memory of what it was like in the first century. And we know a bit from Philo and Josephus and other first century sources about the Pharisees. And there's no question in my mind, all the signs are both overtly and by hints that Saul of Tarsus did grow up in a very strict Jewish, what we would say is a very strict Jewish family. And uh, for them, it's about living on hope, the hope that it's time now for Israel's God to do what he promised he would do centuries ago. We've been thinking about this, we've been praying about it. It is now time for God to act. And then the question is, what sort of people was, must we be to be in the right place, as it were, when God finally does what he's promised to do? And that means you've got to obey the Torah um, carefully and you've got to encourage others to do so. And that's where the zeal comes in. Zeal isn't just for yourself. It's for um, making sure that other Jews are keeping Torah as well, because if every Jew really kept the law, and then um, God would return and would redeem Israel and so on. That's the hope they were living on. And so what we in our modern world might see as legalism or something like that didn't appear like that at all to them. It was a matter of loyalty. And it's one of the great themes of the book, as you've seen, is, is loyalty, that the loyalty of the young Saul of Tarsus to God, the, the God of Israel. And then the fact that through Jesus, Saul has had revealed to him, as it were, what God's loyalty looks like in flesh, in human flesh, in crucified flesh, calling forth a new sort of answering loyalty. And the Greek word for loyalty is, is pistis, um, which is the word we often use for faith. Um, so for Saul, it's a matter of not, oh, well, he was then as a Jew and then all that changed and he became a Christian. It's a matter of, of two quite different modes of loyalty to Israel's God. Yes, I mean, you, you say quite a lot in the book that Paul was not inventing a new religion, as some commentators and historians have assumed. Right. That's really important because in our modern world, and I have a riff about this in a, in a short magazine article I wrote, where if, if supposing you imagine somebody trying to pitch a program on Paul to the BBC or, or whoever, um, which desk are they going to pass you to? And today they would, of course, pass you unhesitatingly to the religion desk. That's a wrong choice. Um, if Paul knew our world, he would say, no, you're, what you mean by religion isn't where it's at at all. Paul is founding these communities, which are um, worship-based, yes, but they're educative, they're egalitarian, they're philanthropic, they are what we would call fictive kinship groups. In other words, people living as family, even though they're totally unlike and from totally different backgrounds. He's founding these communities, the like of which the world had never seen. And, and uh, in order to sustain those communities, they need to learn who God is, they need to learn who Jesus is, because they need to be worshipping, because... Only if they're worshipping will the whole thing function. But then they're more like uh, a philosophical school on the one hand, or they're more like a little set of cells of um, political subversives on the other. And some, because they have the, obviously, the religious component, the, the, the belief, the prayer, the baptism, the Eucharist, etc., we label them as religion and we forget that they were just as much philosophies and, and politics people as well. And so we just don't have the categories to fit. And that's part of the fun of history anyway, is thinking back into the world of people who are so different from ourselves and realizing there are some pretty smart ways of looking at the world and they aren't the same way as we do it. And maybe we can learn from that. Let's go back to the obviously the key moment on the Damascus Road, which has kind of gone into, you know, it's almost become a cliche, a Damascus Road experience. Um, what do you think happened? Well, um, 
we we know from what um, Paul himself says that the heart of it was Paul actually seeing uh, the risen Jesus. And uh, for him, this was not what we would call a private spiritual experience, though many people have tried to make it out that it was, but that it was something in which he really did believe that heaven and earth had become transparent to one another. And in, in the Jewish worldview, ancient and modern, um, this is not nearly as hard as it is for us to imagine, because in our world, we are so soaked in the, actually it's Epicureanism of the post-enlightenment culture that we imagine if there is a place called heaven it's millions of miles away totally different how could you possibly have somebody on earth seeing what's in heaven the jews never thought of it like that because for them the temple which was the center of everything was the place where heaven and earth met and so they had uh, practices of prayer which if you weren't in the temple you could be praying these prayers as a way of hoping that you might at least hear a divine voice or even be given a glimpse of god and the classic passage for this is ezekiel chapter one where the prophet sees the chariot with the whirling wheels on which god seems to be enthroned and he gradually gradually lifts his eyes up through the chariot until he's allowed to glimpse the face of God himself, whereupon he falls down as though he's dead, etc., etc., and then everything follows in the book of Ezekiel from that. But we know that in Paul's day, many Jews were using that sort of technique, if you like, as a way of hoping that they might be given a vision of God ahead of the time when God would finally reveal himself and his purposes and his fulfillment of his promises. And so Paul is going along on the Damascus Road. We don't know whether he's on a donkey or a horse or walking despite Caravaggio's wonderful painting, <laughs> but he may well be praying and praying that he may be able to see who this is sitting on the throne. And finally, he lifts his eyes and it turns out to be Jesus. And at that point, everything he has ever hoped for is fulfilled and everything he has ever dreamed of collapses like a house of cards. In other words, it's a total fulfillment and a total abrogation of the way he'd been going. And so not surprisingly, he's in uh, it's like a, a sort of catatonic state for two or three days and blind and so on until this good man Ananias comes around and says, Brother Saul, um, Jesus has sent me to you, etc. So I think, I think it arrived out of a deeply Jewish style prayer. It results in the revelation to Paul of the Jewish Messiah, and it exposes the fact that this Messiah, Jesus, now stands at the threshold of heaven and earth in a way which makes a lot more sense in ancient Judaism than it might for us. But it's what got Saul turned around and started off. And of course, when Saul announced this to his, his family and friends, he wasn't this wasn't exactly welcome news. Yeah, that's... Um, we, we only see this in long retrospect because in Romans chapter nine, he talks about having great sorrow and unceasing anguish and, and, and being really troubled because of his kinsfolk according to the flesh. He came from a very tight knit family. We, are, we, are, we know that. And there were some of them in Jerusalem, some of them still probably back in Tarsus. He went back to Tarsus after a while where he'd grown up. And we know nothing for sure about that period. But when we piece together all the other bits and pieces, we assume the great sorrow that most of them, uh, quite possibly his parents who had seen him as this brilliant, brilliant young son who they were so proud of. And now he comes back home with his head full of nonsense and dangerous nonsense, too. And then maybe and it is entire speculation that maybe also he had been betrothed from an early age, maybe to the daughter of friends of the family. That's how it was regularly done, especially in orthodox circles. And uh, either 
that either they did get married and then she left him because she couldn't share his faith or maybe her parents broke it off. We don't know. But there is great sorrow there then a determination nonetheless mm -hmm. to go on praying for and working for um, his fellow Jews as long as he lives, uh, as he says, to make them jealous and so save some of them. Um, you wrote about the th famous thorn in the flesh. He's very careful not to reveal what it was, but it might be an illness, it might be an ailment, it might be a recurring temptation. Somebody said to me the other day, was it his sense of horror and guilt uh, at having been complicit in the stoning of Stephen? You know, the fact that he was one of those who was responsible for the death of the first martyr, um, etc. So we, we don't know. And I think I think he doesn't want us to know that the danger is if we take the thorn in the flesh and say, aha, maybe this was epilepsy or something. And maybe what happened to him on the road to Damascus was just an epileptic seizure or something. And, and re really, it wasn't. I mean, we I think we know enough both about Saul and about epilepsy to know that that if he was epileptic, he'd have had other other seizures and would have realized that this wasn't a heavenly vision. It was just a, an illness that he had. So I think we do not know. And of course, when Saul talks about that, Paul talks about that in Second Corinthians 12. The main thing he wants to say is that actually God's grace is more powerful than our weakness and in fact is made known in our weakness and that that's the main thing. Of course, in the book, it really comes across when he writes Second Corinthians that he's... Um point perhaps of a sort of breakdown or something of certainly severe depression yes i mean when he says in chapter one that i despaired of life itself um uh, i know as a pastor that if somebody came and sat in my room and hung their head in their hands and said i have just come to the point where i despair of life itself i would think hmm this is above my pay grade i need to call uh, a serious therapist I i'm a pastor but not not a psychotherapist or whatever um and and the really interesting thing to me about that is both that he admits to that um you know he he admits that's that's where i got to and what that tells us about what was going on in ephesus which was clearly even worse than what luke describes in the acts but then also how he got out of it he says this was to make me rely on the god who raises the dead and and the question is sort of how do you do that do you just screw your courage to the sticking place and say go on you've got to rely on god and i think the answer is no when you're in that despair that's not how it works and i that's when i I, and it's, it's only a hypothesis, but I think it's a good working hypothesis that we know that Saul Paul prayed. We know he was a man of prayer from his early days, and we know that he prayed Jewish style prayers, but now with Jesus in the middle of them. And when you're in that kind of despair, one of the things that you do if you're a person of prayer is your mind and heart go on praying, even if you're in despair. There's still a prayer going on deep down. And I think the prayer went down, as I say in the book, like like a, a plant in harsh winter. The roots of the prayer go down into deeper soil and they come back with these amazing prayerful poems like Philippians 2 and Colossians 1. And I think it's out of that that he discovers that he can, after all, hope in the God who raises the dead, because that the prayer has somehow drawn strength from the life which is very deep down within by the Spirit, the life which is in Christ and by the Spirit. You, you stress throughout the book that Paul's letters are not you know, works of systematic theology. He's writing into specific situations to address conflicts and issues. Yet you also say that he's not sort of writing on the hoof and making it up as he goes along. He's thought about these things in advance, particularly Romans. This is the thing. I mean, you know, you and I are having an interview now. Um, you're asking me questions, which I have actually most of them been asked before. So some of the answers I'm giving you, I am doing it off the off the cuff, on the hoof, 
However, it's not the first time I've talked about these things by any manner of means. And I think something similar is going on with Paul. He lives in a world pre-print, pre-electronic media. So every time he's with a group who need to know about this or that or the other, uh, he has to explain it again. And he's developed ways of explaining things uh, on the go, uh, which texts really make the point in which contexts and so on. So then when he's suddenly faced with a crisis in Galatia, or then when he suddenly finds he has to write this letter we now call Second Corinthians, even though it's dragged out of him, it's so painful. Um, it, it's, it's not the first time he's thought about these things. So though it is, in that sense, situational, in that sense, it's addressed to this, this group of people in this moment, he is drawing on much deeper, larger resources of biblical exegesis and theological reflection, as we would call it. But uh, then, yes, I think he's had Romans in mind for a long time. Romans has a different sort of stately feel to it. It, it comes in these four movements like a symphony and uh, the way he constructs those is quite brilliant in terms of the interlacing of the themes. And this, I don't think, happens by accident. He, some of it is written very fast. Um, Romans 5 doesn't have any verbs half the time. He's just, it's almost like lecture notes. At the same time, that too has a point, as though we are here so close to the reality that, that it, it, it's hard even to form it into sentences. We can just splash nouns and adjectives and things on the page, uh, and it, it makes the, the impact that he wants it to, to make. So he's, by this stage, he, he is a writer, and he knows it, and he's he's relishing it. But he's drawing together stuff that he's said again and again orally over many years. You write that Western churches have often perhaps misinterpreted Paul or imposed medieval notions on, on his writing. Do you think Eastern churches have grasped Paul better and distorted his message less? That's a good question. I am not that familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy. I have several Eastern Orthodox friends and we talk about this and that and I've read some books and I've worshipped in Eastern churches from time to time. But I am not an expert on Eastern theology. However, when I write about Paul and other things, I find that people in the Eastern churches are often quicker to catch on with some of what I'm saying. When I published my big book on Paul, the first translation of it into another language was actually into Russian. Apparently in the, the, the Moscow theological seminaries, they, they are reading my stuff. Um, so whether that means they agree with me or not, I really don't know. I haven't been in touch with them to find out. But I think... Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say the Eastern Church has got everything right and the Western Church has got everything wrong. I think we're all a rich mixture of, of, of right and wrong. But I think the Eastern Church may have made mistakes, but it hasn't made our mistakes. They don't have a dualist cosmology in the way that so much of the West does with a split between heaven and earth. They, they have a much easier more Jewish style, actually, commerce between heaven and earth. What they don't have, which Paul does have, is a very strong theology of the cross. I've asked Eastern friends, um, how, how do you interpret the cross? And sometimes all they will say is it's the prelude to the resurrection. They don't want to go near it because they know that ever since Anselm, the West has gone off with particular theories of the cross and that that's a problem. Um, but I, I think we need to bring the two back together. And I think until we do, we won't have a whole picture. It's interesting in the book um, how it charts Paul's views of Christ's return, because it, it seems that in some of the earlier letters, these thinks Christ will return really quite soon. Perhaps later on, he adjusts that view. Is that right? Yes, I don't think that's quite it. I think he knows right through that Jesus might come back at any time. 
Um, at the same time, in Second Thessalonians, he's aware that there are certain dark events which might precipitate that. And I think he has this idea of an emperor wanting to put up a statue in the temple in Jerusalem, which comes through in Second Thessalonians, uh, which is what Caligula tried to do. And I think Paul thought, aha, it'll be something like that that will precipitate it. But it's all very vague. And uh, uh, we, we have to be careful because, as I've often said, in Second Thessalonians, he says, don't be alarmed if you get a letter saying that the day of the Lord has come. And I've often said to people, if the day of the Lord meant the end of the world, then they would hardly expect to be informed of this by letter. So we need to revise our opinions of how this is all going to work out. But the crucial thing is that early on, say in Galatians, though that Galatians doesn't mention the, the second coming except obliquely, um, but certainly in Thessalonians and in First Corinthians, he expects that he will be alive when Jesus comes back. Then in Second Corinthians, it's clear that through the experience he's had, he is facing the prospect that he might well not be alive when Jesus comes back. And that comes through in Philippians chapter one as well, um, when he says, I don't know whether I'm going to be executed or, or get out of jail or what, but whichever way it's OK by me. And so uh, and then in Romans, he kind of pulls back from that and simply says, now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Um, so it's not that he thought Jesus has to come back within a generation and then he changed his mind. It's that he thought to begin with, well, it, I'll be alive when he comes back. And then later on, he realizes I might actually well might well die before then. But this this doesn't affect the question which people have knuckled their brows about for the last century and more about the so-called delay of the parousia. Um, and actually for which there's there's no good evidence that. The church went through a crisis of confidence at AD 70 or whatever. That's that's a modern myth. There are a couple of texts, Second Peter 3 and John 21, which clearly are puzzled about the fact that the apostles are dying out and what's going to happen. And they basically say, look, don't worry about that. Not a big deal. And when you go on past Paul to people like Ignatius or Clement or Polycarp or um, I don't know Justin Martyr or Irenaeus at the end, towards the end of the middle of the end of the second century, they are not bothered at all about the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet. They know he might come back at any time. That's the crucial thing. I just ask you about the connection between Jesus and Paul's messages. I mean, in some circles, it's seen that Jesus preached the kingdom and Paul had the more justification by faith message, or you know, to, to put it crudely. Um, do you think their messages are actually much more similar than has often been thought? <laughs> Paul certainly is just as as keen on the kingdom of God as Jesus is. And when Paul uses the phrase kingdom of God, you can tell that it's a slogan that he knows and his churches know. And in a sense, it sums up what they're all about. But the difference between Jesus and Paul is the difference between somebody who composes a symphony and somebody who teaches the orchestra to play it. Jesus has done the composition and Paul's job is not to recompose the symphony, but to get folk around the world to play it. Um, and so it's a different task, a different stage in the process. The danger is, again, that we collapse all of this into a modern style religion message so that Jesus is the teacher of a religion and Paul is teaching the same religion. And that's that's simply wrong. It's not teaching a religion. Jesus is doing something as a result of which the world becomes a different place. Paul's job is to say, now that the world is a different place because of what Jesus has done, this is who we have to be. This is how we have to live. And it's that's the message that something happened on the cross and resurrection of Jesus as a result of which history, the world turned its great one off corner and entered a new mode. And Paul is teaching people 
what it means to live in that new mode. If Paul had tried to do the same thing as Jesus did, that would mean that he didn't believe that Jesus had been successful in his mission of transforming the world. Now, of course, today people say, Jesus transforming the world, how can you possibly believe that? Look look out of the window. It's obvious the world wasn't changed. And Paul would say, actually, you're looking for the wrong sort of change. There are changes that happen and will happen and have happened. And church history is full of them. And the world is quite a different place, actually, from how it was in the first century. And not only because we have electronic toys and things like that. Um, Something really did change. And it's Paul's job to teach people what it means and how to live, how to be part of that change. Paul was never reluctant to share his honest views with churches. What do you think he'd say to the Church of England today? The notion of disagreeing well, of different views, you know, needing to be um, hosted, that sort of thing. Do you think he would have had problems with that? No. um, If you read 1 Corinthians, um, that's all about which differences can you live with and which differences can't you live with. That's our question today. And it was his question in 1 Corinthians. No question. And if you work carefully through 1 Corinthians, you'll see that there are some things which are absolutely off limits and other things where he says, learn to disagree well over this. And the question is to tell the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. You can see the first lot in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, all sorts of things from having lawsuits against one another to financial malpractice to all sorts of things and sexual irregularities. And just as those are off limits. But then in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10 and 11, he's teaching them how to live together across the cultural differences which have to do with food offered to idols, which is a major issue in a city like Corinth and other things like that. And then particularly how to live in the body of Christ with its many members in chapter 12. But here's the thing. I think if Paul were to look at the modern Western church, whether the Church of England or the churches in Britain or the churches in America, the thing that would absolutely horrify him is not just that we are disunited, but that we don't much care. We don't really care that we're disunited for Paul. Every letter Paul writes is at one level about the unity of the church. And for the last 400 years, we have colluded with churches being disunited. And we've got so used to that, we think it doesn't matter. And there are many, many other issues. I mean, holiness is important to Paul. Preaching the gospel is important to Paul. If he thought we weren't up to scratch with those, he would come at us all right. But unity is absolutely vital. And uh, if if I say any one thing on the basis of Paul, it's we've just got to look at this whole thing again. And you don't achieve unity by saying, let's not make a fuss about all the things we disagree about. There are some things we've got to learn to disagree about and other things we have to stand very firm on. And Paul is quite clear about that. Just fine. What, what are you working on next now that you've completed this? Oh, goodness. Uh, I'm right now in the middle of doing the Gifford Lectures in in, in, in Aberdeen. I'm, I'm based in St. Andrews, but the Gifford Lectures rotate around the four ancient Scottish universities, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen and St. Andrews. This year, Aberdeen are hosting it and it's me and I've done six so far and I've got two to do. And I'm sitting at home today, snowbound, um, working on lectures seven and eight, which I wrote some while ago and which I now have to edit up and get tight for delivery on Monday and Wednesday night. And that's that's very exciting. The the title is Discerning the Dawn, uh, History, Eschatology and New Creation. And it's all about the way in which when we look back at questions of history, when we look back at the early Christian eschatology, we see bubbling up from that this image in the New Testament of new creation, which actually then helps us to reframe the question of natural theology. How do we look at the world and talk about God? How do we see and envisage God's action in the world? 
and how do we talk wisely about what goes wrong in the world, even though God's supposedly in charge of it. Those have been wonderful opportunities for me, and it'll take me quite a while now to, to work them up for publication. But I also have some commentaries. I'm supposed to be writing commentaries on Galatians and Philippians. Um, they've been signed up for for some time, and I really want to finish them. So uh, when I'm finished with the Giffords, they'll, that'll probably be the next pair of projects. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.